My guest today is Jamie Snow. He's a storyteller, innovator, connector. He's somebody who is looking at bridging the generational gaps between millennials and Gen Xers and the remnants of the baby boomers who are still the money behind many of the funds and VC and private equity plays. And today we're going to be looking at how you can start to capitalize on your ability to cooperate, how you can use soft skills and storytelling uh, in order to build consensus and to play to your strengths and to identify those moments in your career when you need to step back and let others lead. And when it's your turn to lead, when to step forward. So Jamie, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to coming on. And um, I've recently listened to a few of your, your podcasts, and I, I can't say that I have had any better kind of uh, tidbits and a few aha moments recently. Oh, wow. From, Thank you. From, yeah, from Conrad in the last episode with his creative writing. And um, recently, I listened to the deep listening, which was very cool to understand the difference of deep listening and active listening. And that actually <laughs> kind of goes to the generational gap that, uh, that you were talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, well, I, I, I can take very little of the credit because um, my guests are fabulous. But what really uh, amazes me is the interconnectedness of so many of the topics. And what that's taught me, and I think that speaks to what you were talking about in terms of those strength curves, is I'm now starting to really come into my own by being able to join the dots in ways that I wasn't able to before. And no doubt that, uh, you know, speaking to nearly 500 people on the podcast has helped. And thank you all very much. Uh, hugely grateful. What's interesting, and you touched on it as we're in the green room, this gap between millennials and uh, Gen Xers, the language gap, the concept gap, the values gaps. Just talk us through some of the challenges that you think we're going to be facing and some of the blind spots we've got to be really careful for. Sure. So it's interesting as I've transitioned from working at companies like Accenture, big global systems integrators, and telling stories, helping on bids, helping secure large contracts. And, you know, our focus really is on how do we support sales? I've been in a sales support role my entire career. It's where I like to be. I don't fancy myself a salesperson. I enjoy making salespeople successful because at the end of the day, the goal is that we're all successful. And so bridging that gap with the generations has been interesting. So the younger generations have these values that when you're building a business are quite different than the values you know, of Gen X's or baby boomers or any of the people who are typically in, in leadership now. And sustainability as far as business sustainability, so B Corp status, people, planet, profit, this is intrinsically important to these younger, highly educated and very driven individuals who are starting companies. They are making sure that everything within their supply chain is sustainable. The money that they're receiving is coming from private equity or venture capital that they have sustainability and ESG requirements. And we're noticing a bit from my perspective of working with salespeople my entire career that you can have these sales enablement shops. You can have people that know that sales enablement is extremely important. But when you have the I would say the resources that are in their 20s, they have less experience, they're very technically savvy. What you're going to get back is basically a cleaner, nicer, polished version of what you give them. So if we're talking about sales collateral, presentations, proposals, you know, you're going to get a cleaned up version of the messaging that you gave them. And the gap here is these services are critical, but what they're missing is all of that value from the experiences of actually being involved in these scenarios 
early on so that you can be more strategic and that you can provide not just cleaning up things and making them look pretty, but you can provide that messaging support, that alignment, not just on a bid or not just on a project, but across an entire account or across an entire campaign. And once you start to provide this alignment, you can then start to operationalize. So if you already have your brand elements in place, well, let's see how we can take those brand elements and now provide those to you in a way that is easily usable and reusable. Instead of just designing a presentation, here you go, here's your presentation, good luck, hope you win the business. We want to provide you a template. We want to provide you the building blocks, the tips and tricks of how you should be messaging something, giving you a suite of imagery and icons and boilerplate content so that you have this at your, at your fingertips. And this is the biggest area that I see from growing businesses or growing sales teams is that gap between knowing what you want and operationalizing all of the process that needs to happen so that you have those materials and you have all of those digital assets that can hit your customers at any channel at any time. In principle and logically, I absolutely 100% agree. But my gut is telling me that there's a deeper question that we really need to explore which is why is it that we have to create all of this noise? Uh, why are we creating this noise? Are, are we doing it to serve the customer or are we doing it because it's part of our sales process or our marketing cadence or whatever? And before you go down that road, I think what we have to do is we've got to take a step back and reflect and ask, what are we trying to accomplish? Because the explosion of technology. I mean, it's not unusual for salespeople to be tied up for two and a half hours navigating their own tech stack throughout an eight-hour working day. Now, if you can simplify that and eliminate that, where enablement can be really brilliantly helpful, okay, you now release two and a half hours to spend on high-value behavior or just going home. Maybe reducing the stress level would just be a good start. Everything seems to be about creating stress and tension and driving urgency. Buyers don't like that. It sets the salesperson's brain into idiot mode because it switches off the prefrontal cortex and logic, reason, and language turn off. I mean, where is the positive upside in that? Then we market to our customers and brutalize them with this browbeating noise. And then we wonder why they don't pick up and why they've got this arsenal of defense mechanisms to keep your emails out and keep your voicemails out and everything else. Let's maybe step back. I mean, please come back. Tell me I'm talking shit. You're spot on. And actually, you hit on a problem that has been, well, that I've felt my entire career. So one thing that I always tell my customers is involve us earlier. And if you involve us earlier, we can help you reduce all that noise. Because what it really comes down to, I'm supporting a salesperson, but that salesperson is creating the relationship. And that relationship is the most important thing. And what I want to help them do is create an emotional connection within that relationship. And you can do that through storytelling. And as a salesperson, if you're you know, building that relationship, telling your own personal stories. Now you have a connection with that person. And we don't want the materials that that person is getting or all the collateral or all of the touch points from the different areas of your organization to start hurting that relationship. And that's what I have noticed throughout a lot of my career. And a, perf and a perfect example of this, it just brings back a thought. This was years ago, but... I worked at Ernst & Young, and we had a bit of a boutique team that helped the sales teams, and we worked on national publications for biosciences and, you know, some interesting, interesting things. But the CEO sent out a communication, and it was with a video and everything, and it was when they were starting a rebrand. 
And the premise for the rebrand was the CEO went in to close a big billion dollar global deal. And the company on the other end on the boardroom table, and we had a photograph of this, it was fascinating. They had about 20 different pieces of collateral from Ernst & Young from all over the world. And they said, you tell us that you are a global firm, yet you look completely disjointed and it doesn't look like you're a global firm from here. And that was what made them rebrand. And it was spot on. If you looked at that, it looked like you had proposals and magazines and whatever it might be from different companies. The only thing that was the same was the EY logo. And that was kind of an eye-opener of we need alignment. And we also now notice that we have our different entities all over the world that have been producing the same things differently. And think of all the rework that we could save by having everybody, you know, back under one simple to use and knowable brand. Because before that, there was 36 colors. There was different styles of images you could use, and there was no standard layout. Stylistically, absolutely. But to come back to your very first point about personalization, you know, having that personal relationship... What I certainly don't want is generic material to be Correct. sent to somebody because when I'm writing my social media content, very often I have an individual human being in mind that I'm writing it for. And they're probably somewhere in my sales cycle, uh, but they're at a particular point in their buying journey. And that's the important thing. And I'm trying to right. touch them at that moment with something that's timely, relevant, and contextually valuable to them. Because that's, I think, my job in the sale. If I'm going to sell smart and sell hot, I don't want to sell cold because I'm lazy. And uh, also, I, it just smacks to me a bit massively ineffective because it's 64 times more profitable, uh, according to a, a BankSAS survey of 2019, to expand a sale than it is to go out and find a new one. And what I get to keep, I rather like spending. What I make, I can't spend because my wife prevents me and tells me that it's the tax man's and the VAT man and everyone else's. <laughs> and so that bothers me, it irks me. I'm trying to work out how can I do the least amount possible for the most amount of return and do really interesting, important, meaningful work. Now. To my mind, that seems to be pretty much nirvana. Why is it we don't start with that premise when we're trying to sell our proposition, when we're going into a job, you know, when we're managing a team? So it's interesting. And I think depending on your starting point here, I think a lot of people get stuck as a cog in the wheel. There's process that's in place, and that's kind of your starting point. The way that I like to look at things is, you know, from a bit of a design thinking standpoint. So let's go back and actually understand, you know, the solution focus and understand what it is we're striving for. And, you know, to my point earlier, you kind of have to let your brand get out of the way. So if you, you know, Ernst & Young's previous brand was all over the place and it led itself so that things didn't look consistent. And so then you could have some feelings about that. If you have a brand that's, you know, two colors, you have a couple styles of images, that's it. You let the brand get out of the way. Now you allow the content that's on that page and that relationship with the salesperson to really take center stage. And it's, you know, from someone who works in brands, it's kind of weird to say, you know, let the brand take the back seat. But that's really, if you're trying to get someone to bring a customer in or you're trying to make the sale, they need to be center focus. And how I can help or how your sales enablement team can help is by taking that process, that methodology, you know, your messaging and preparing that for you in a way that fits in to your style and is customized to the customer. So what we're trying to do is really provide those reusable assets so that 
you have an 80% starting point, and then we can discuss, well, tell me about your customer. Tell me the words they're using. Tell me you know, the conversations you're having so that I can understand their social styles. I can understand what type of buyer they are. Are they an amiable person? Are they analytical? Are they expressive? Are they directive? And you know, from there, we can then tailor how we message. And whether it's the channel or whether it is the actual deliverable, but you want to take that and I'm getting deliverable focused here, but again, it's stripping as much of this off so that the premise is on the relationship with the salesperson and everything else is just to support that. Jamie, you're on the money. The challenge is that most salespeople are so busy with activity and spread so thin because of the business model that tells them and the, the, the management ethos that tells them selling is a numbers game. What you've just described there to me lends itself beautifully to a medium term prospecting focus. So you focus on your medium term pipeline, which is six to 36 months out before you start having a selling conversation with them. And you engage them when they are making space and passively looking and learning how. By the time they're deciding on what their options are, you should have already seeded the ideas of uh, what that looks like because of the value and the frequency and consistency of touch. But I don't know many salespeople who, prior to me getting involved or someone like me, have that breathing space. Um, When that happens, we see 400% growth in pipeline year on year. We see everybody hit quota. No one leave except the people you want to go, that sort of thing. Um, So why is it that it persists that um, we have to beat our people until they scream and drive out seven out of 10 of the new hires within a year in the hope that one might survive two years? Just churn everything. It's just such a waste. It's an interesting problem, and I've seen it from some different perspectives. And I think depending on your culture and your environment, if you have someone who's grown up in the environment, they can be territorial. And when you have new people come in, you you can see a bit of the struggle there. Everybody's trying to kind of uh, get their territory. So there's an issue there, but I, I think also intrinsically, what happens when these companies, you know, have a model, a sales model, a sales enablement enablement model, and it's a big Goliath, it's hard to change and be nimble. And so there's, there's a bit of that gap that kind of persists. And from my experience at Accenture, where we excelled, where some other groups didn't, is we created that internal full service agency model that supported bids and supported the sales teams but it was it was outside of marketing but we were in conjunction with marketing and so we could provide everything from the tools the deliverables the writing the forecasting to the project management so now this enabled the salespeople to just focus on their objectives and their goals. And they knew that we were kind of on retainer. So it wasn't just that we we had to engage, you know, just on a specific project. But if you bring us in at that higher level, we can strategize a bit more and take more of those things off your plate. So, okay, well, you tell me you have one account and you've got 10 bids going out to that account. So that's 10 efforts that typically would be done by different groups. Well, let's now pull those together. Let's have a meeting with the four to six people that need to be involved for decision makers. And let's figure out how we can take all of these different bids and what's the same. Let's pull that out and we automate it and we standardize it. And so that's how we started to see a lot more time getting put back onto the salesperson so that they had more time with the customer. They had more time, you know, at industry events and more time just understanding the landscape of the market, who the other players are, delving in deeper into the account. 
And that was because we started to take the entire process, except the relationship and the sale, outside of their core efforts. And so now that's where it helped because we didn't just become you know, a team where we had, you know, one person or a vendor that did some graphic design or someone that did some technical writing. We had an entire staff with thought diverse clientele that could strategize and execute across starting from the sales collateral and deliverables from the very beginning of the sales cycle, all the way up to the buying decisions when you're in front of the decision makers. What what was the effect? Well, no, first question. Sure. How soon did that transformation start to take effect on the result? The first year that we had our team in full support of some of the internal sales teams, we noticed a 30% reduction in rework as far as the deliverables that we are giving to the sales team. So that meant that our staff was churning things out 30% quicker because we operationalized things. So that effect allowed the sales teams to actually respond to more bids. They now increased, we increased our throughput, throughput, and they increased their output, which in turn led to more business because they put the feelers out more. And then year two, we started to focus on, okay, so we we got the team up and running, we can produce more. Now, how can we fine tune everything and make what we put out there even better? So that it was a, instead of starting from square one again, we went back to zero and said, okay, what is it that we really need to be providing these people? What's the service that they really need? That's when we started to get better conversations with sales leadership and getting involved earlier so that we could get in at that account level. And that was the difference. When we're in on the project level, you're still churning and you don't see the benefits of looking at it from a higher level and and seeing all the bids. Who was the catalyst for that initiative and who gave it executive sponsorship? Because it sounds to me like that's pretty important. Extraordinarily important. The executive sponsorship came from an executive who was a sales executive. They were working with um, one of their executives that was a delivery person on projects for Accenture. And so what they did is through his direction, he said, okay, well, here's where the gap is, is we're doing all these things. Every sales group is doing them differently. We want to bring this capability in-house. Okay. And so what was the knock-on effect on operations? Because by the sounds of things, if I've heard you correctly, the sales executive got an operations executive sponsor on board because sales creates so much of a downstream headache. And this is, again, why we need to start thinking of our businesses as systems that are interconnected and what marketing does and what product does affects sales and what sales does affects the customer success team and the success team in terms of operations and customer account growth and all of that. It's all one great big system. And as far as the customer is concerned, you are just one company. They don't give a damn that your sales or marketing or product or management or finance or logistics or anything else. If the experience is good, they associate it with the brand. If the experience is shit, they associate it with the brand. So as a brand person, what would you be telling people at this point? So this is the interesting thing. You, You touched on something here where the relationship with the salesperson, if you're looking at from the customer's perspective, they have other touch points. And those touch points are, you know, the the customer service and also the marketing, the direct mail and things like that. So what we wanted to do from a brand perspective was understand all of those channels and the cadences so that we could then say, okay, well, we have these bids going on in this account. It's worth, you know, a couple billion dollars. You know, this person saying that we're sending them 
too much, too many emails, or they're getting too many LinkedIn invites or whatever it might be. And, and really adjusting that down to the customer level. And the only way that you can get that insight is by working with the sales team and client service. And I think a lot of times the client service team, which our group at Accenture was really good at bringing them in and doing retrospectives or postmortems that they said, and you know, understanding what worked, what didn't work. All of those insights are, are what's most important. And from the brand is understanding your channels and not oversaturating because there's a, a large percentage of people that will just ignore. And then that starts to hurt the relationship with the sales team. Okay. I want to rewind because you touched on something which is very, very close to my heart, which is systems thinking. I have a belief that we need to think more like engineers around a problem. And we've got to be way less territorial because at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is the customer's outcome. That's what they pay us for. They don't give a damn about your features and functions. They don't care about your valuation target. And they really don't care whether you're going to make President's Club. So given all of that, can you just give us a bit of an insight into what systems thinking is from a branding perspective? Sure. Because we haven't explored it from there. And how that then translates into creating cooperation uh, across departments and also with partners and customers. Can't forget that. So yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. From a brand perspective, it's interesting because if you don't look at the organization or the organism as a whole, it's almost like you could cut off a limb, and you're going to have some big big issues. You're going to have to be able to do things a little bit differently. It's not going to be the same as the way things work before. Go and and so. What happens here is you need to make sure that your brand is differentiated so that you have um, you have value. But then from there, as far as it goes down and disseminates throughout an organization, this is where you run into issues of gray area. And people who are in sales and sales support play in the gray area a lot. A lot of brands have great standards for marketing materials and for how banners are going to look and when they're they're up on the side of a building or how a kiosk is going to look at an airport or a screen at a train station. But what they're not looking at is how all of that from the look and the feel and the way that the type is used and the emotion that you get from the imagery, how that's translated through to sales materials. So a lot of times bids, anytime you're doing proposals, anything like that, the customer has their own stipulations and their requirements for how things need to look. And so this causes a continuity issue with brand, marketing, and now sales support. And so what we have to do is understand that from the highest level of the brand, that things need to be disseminated down in the spirit of the brand. But to tell someone that you can only use Arial font, but yet I'm on a, on a bid and they say they want Times New Roman. Now, brand has a problem with me using Times New Roman, but I want to win the bid and not get disqualified. So I'm using, you know, Arial. So what happens is you need to, from a brand perspective, have alignment so that you're understanding all your channels and you're not oversaturating channels and you're understanding what part of the market and what part of the cycle you're in. If you're, if you're in high tech, you're looking to understand, are you early stages? Are you late stages? You know, and who your buyer is. Are they pragmatic? Are they um, an early adopter? And who is responsible for the brand? Ultimately, it needs to come from the top. It needs to come from the CEO. And they need to make it a priority. So everybody below them needs to be using things and working within the brand so that there is consistency across it. So you don't run into issues of having a customer see different from different channels, getting a different feel or perspective on your brand. 
And and that's can you define what you mean by brand so that we're operating from the same definition here? Absolutely. So when I think of a brand, I you know, you're looking at the personality of a company. So if you try to give it human traits, so what does this brand, you know, look like? What's its personality? Is it, you know, on a on a on the spectrum of serious to funny, you know, where does it sit on the spectrum from conservative to progressive? Where does it sit? And understanding how that personality fits in and how your customers work with that type of personality. So for example, if I'm a customer, I'm conservative and I'm looking at my tech stack and I need to make some decisions because right now competition is eating us alive because they're more efficient. And so I I come back and and I'm looking at this and I say, well, if I'm looking at this from a brand perspective, I want something that is going to be pragmatically that I can get into that is not going to be I'm conservative, so I want something that fits my personality as a conservative. So I'm not going to be looking for something that is super high tech and something that is telling me that the future is so innovative and progressive that what you're doing today isn't going to fly. Because you have a lot of buyers out there that need to understand that, okay, we have some issues here and I need some fixes, but I can't throw everything out. Not everything's bad. Help me to operationalize things and understand what's good and what we're doing, how that works and how we can expand that across the organization and strip away all of those things that are causing the extra churn. So th- this and, thing, oh, sorry, I've gone down on. a rabbit hole a bit. I've gone down the rabbit <laughs> hole a little bit into this, the weeds, but. This seems to me that while the company wishes to own and control the brand, the experience the customers have at the mercy of your people and your marketing and your collateral and your processes is what really defines it. That is true. Right. Okay. To that point, I I think that's where the sales leadership and the business leadership need to understand how sales can help the brand with the customer needs along with you know tying in again so that we're not siloed and so we're bringing everything in that customer service as well so from the the high level there needs to be buy-in that the importance of freeing everybody up is that we can standardize a lot of this stuff and you know let our brand take a back seat so that you know if we see 10 different things from EY on the table they all look like they have the same colors and they all have the UI logo, but instantly it's about the content and it's not about the brand. So now someone has gotten past that and now they're seeing what it might be their brand or something that they are interested in as opposed to saying, oh, wow, how cool is Ernst Young's brand? And then forgetting about, well, why are they actually looking at this? And so for me, There's a difference between having something that is flashy and represents what you're looking for and have something that is stable and can sit back, command its authority, but at the same time, allow the content of what's trying to be sold to actually shine through. This again speaks to a mindset of leadership. And I'm really interested to see how you're seeing this conflict go on between the generations, because millennials generally have a more um, egalitarian approach. There's uh, a generally more sense of social purpose and a desire to create a respectful environment. However, it clashes with Gen X because they look at it as being too woke and bloody pronouns and all of this. There needs to be a balance and an understanding found um, that I think uh, that is missing. And this is where I think enablement can really come into its own because 
a lot of the salespeople are significantly younger than the decision makers they're selling to. And certainly a lot of the communications that I receive often cause my hackles to go up because they clearly don't know who I am. And if they really wanted to sell to me, or they were anyway halfway decent, because all they've done is tell me that these people do not know what they are doing and they do not care about me or my outcome. All they care about is hitting some ludicrous metric. So in terms of trying to navigate and manage that communication gap, using systems thinking, using cooperation, using jobs to be done, putting the customer in that in front and center. How do we turn enablement away from the technology and away from the data and the metrics and all of that stuff that enablement seems to obsess about? And how do we get them to focus again back on the development of good business acumen, a real understanding of the moving parts of the customer's business? Because the number of times salespeople come in and they've got no idea. It's interesting. I think, and I mean, this goes to your business, but I think a coach, <laughs> I think coaching is critical. And actually, right, say coaching, again. <laughs> <laughs> I think coaching is critical. <laughs> and I think coaching for the younger people, not for me, the coaching for the sales enablement team Coaching and mentoring uh, as for salespeople is one thing, but I'm actually talking about the coaching and mentoring of the sales enablement team, the millennials, the younger people that are coming in and executing on a lot of, um, in a lot of these roles. And for me, for example, that has been a big differentiator is I felt like I've always had some great coaching. And I had the ability to kind of bridge that gap because I think what's hard sometimes is the language barrier between sales and sales enablement. And partially that is because it is a generational barrier. And then partially it is so tech focused with the millennials and it's relationship focused with the sales team. And so bridging that soft skill gap with the millennial people that are executing, giving them more of that understanding of look at this from a system, look at it from where you are, and then where we need to be from a sales perspective. And that gap of you executing on just a deliverable versus you understanding the actual sales cycle, the customer relationships, and how everything fits as a whole, then I think what you start to get is you have someone who can come in and say, well, let's talk with customer service. Let's put them into the workflow. Let's start to bring in these other areas that not everybody is used to involving. And let's have these conversations early so that we're not just down on the bid level and churning and burning and just pumping bids out the same way that we used to. And, and I think that there's a lot of benefit to investing to kind of fill that gap between the language barrier of the generations and also the technical engineering type people versus your sales and leadership personalities. I, I think that's kind of the big difference is the ability to work together and understand what the common ground is and understand what the common goal is. This is where I see enablement. It should be one of the sharp ends of the spear because you are the how to the board's what when it comes to facilitating the sales results. And that fuels everything else in the business because that's how you pay for stuff. Now, I think a lot of leadership got quite fat on free money. Now things have tightened up and there's an entire generation or you know, probably two generations actually that have never had to sell to make a profit within tech. Right. How do they transition fast enough to meet the demands of the investors and without the wheels coming off and without turning into monsters uh, in front of their clients? Because this is a massively stressful transition. It, it's really interesting here because you run into a, a loyalty gap with the younger generations where if you're working at an older, you know, you're 50, 60 years old, you might have had four 
jobs your entire career. And you've worked for the same company for 10, 20 years. And you have millennials that come in and their average tenure is one to two years. And so there's a, there's a real difference there, first off, from a perspective of how do we operationalize things so that as we have more people coming in and touching at different points in the process and coming and going, how do we make that work? But then also, how do we fill that gap of the communication barrier and the different value sets, but also how do we increase that loyalty? So how do we get those millennials to stay around? And I think it does go back to my previous point of coaching and mentoring. That to me, when I was younger, I had that and that was a big motivator. I want, you know, who you work for, you don't realize as much when you're young, but that's the most important thing for me is the people that you surround yourself with. And that I think can play out in a way where you can have motivated individuals that are younger and less experienced that are now being coached up to have the business acumen and their language so that they can mesh better with different generations and non-technical people. And I think that's that's where kind of the, the sweet spot is, is how do we create a culture where we can coexist, where we can be high tech and progressive, yet also still have conservative values and, you know, build relationships the old fashioned way. Isn't it really about trying to find the right balance? Part of the problem, I, I've, I've listened to Tim Urban's fabulous book on uh, society that he released uh, recently, and it's uh, six years of research, and his research is always thorough. And he makes the point about the difference between the um, uh, the top left and right, who are happy to uh, go across the aisle and be collaborative and uh, talk to people that they disagree with, versus the bottom left and the bottom right, who basically throw sticks and stones and call each other names. And we've got to get away from that. You know, I, I was sort of j- joking earlier about bloody pronouns or whatever, but it, it has got to the point where common sense seems to have gotten out uh, lost and these things have become politicized and i think one of the um, one example of a really well structured company is 37 signals where they're not allowed to talk about politics because frankly it just creates more shit and they never went out to get funding they did it all organically now this is a company with 80 people and 180,000 people spending 50 bucks a month that's the kind of business we all really, really want. Let's be honest. Okay. So th- it's a fantastic operation, but it's really collaborative. It's really constructive in terms of its conflict. People are expected to fail. They're expected to put up, uh, have a voice. And I think that's something that's been lost. We don't speak to people we disagree with often enough. Uh, we don't go looking to prove our thesis wrong. And with terribly brittle and fragile. And I, I would just exhort people to stop with this shit, grow up a little bit, and start thinking what's best for all of us. I'd be curious on your take. I agree. Part of you know how these generations have come about now, there's a bit of that, and I don't weakness is not the the best word for this, but it it's tough to understand. The non, you know, I'm Gen X, and so I have loyalty. I've had, you know, three companies I've worked for, and now I work with a lot of smaller startups. And there is just such a different mentality as far as the perspective and the respect of some of those above them, because they don't necessarily believe or agree with the values of why they created some of these companies. You know, some millennials can't understand why big oil is still in existence. And it's like, well, there's some bad there. They're trying to do some good, but you try to, you know, write trillion dollar market overnight. Like it's it's just not gonna you we, know, we that's can't not be grinding halt if there's no oil because there's no plastic. And no matter how much we hate right. it. Um the, exactly. We, um yeah, and, and, everything from ink to the pharmaceuticals. So exactly. And I think that there's 
a bit of a lack of understanding of the history of some of these things sometimes and just understanding that, yes, there's change that needs to be done. You're coming in, you're creating new companies, you want different ways of doing things, but there was a reason that things were done this way. Some of the tried and true and the proven still works and exists and you have to respect it, learn to work with it and help understand how you can be part of the change as opposed to someone who's just bucking the system because it doesn't fit with how they grew up or their values. This is the strongest possible argument that I can think of for genuine diversity of thought. I want to have many eyes with very different perspectives on the problem so that we can iron out um, the uh, misunderstandings, the erroneous beliefs, um, the uh, negative unintended consequences. Um, But we also have to be reasonable and not cater for every little whim. Um, we, we are we are in business to make a profit. We have to make a profit or we cannot continue in business unless we've got incredibly deep um, uh, pockets of people who, with fewer brains. What we really need to do is we've got to start thinking about how we can uh, galvanize the best from our people. Think about how do we get people to want to stay, to be fully engaged, to be completely committed to the projects and the customers and the work that they're doing and to be uh, feel like they have a voice. That's how you keep people, not by bullying them and not by bribing them. That works for the short term, but it it's not a sustainable way of doing things. And um, you, you're seeing it now with the younger generation, well, Gen Zs and millennials uh, being perfectly happy to cock their snoot. I mean, I, I was at um, a conference um, about six months ago, and they had their former head of diversity for Adidas there. And he said, well, how many of you would like to come and work for us? Three hands out of 200 went up. In my day, every hand in the room would have gone up because it was the brand. Yep. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, just such a shift. And the, we have to think as leaders completely differently. Because if we don't, we're just going to get subsumed. It's like you know, people who don't adapt to this technology that's coming on the market now with AI. In six months' time, they're probably not going to have noticed what's happened until their market's been eroded and it's too late to do something. I'm a big fan of Pascal's wager on this one. Not that I believe that there is an afterlife, but if you don't believe in AI, it's probably worth just taking the risk. <laughs> This is true. (laughs) Jamie, we've got to wrap up now. Tell me this, best mistake. What was the best mistake you made throughout your your career? And what did you learn from it that you profited from after? So I jumped into a startup very early, too early. Didn't have a longstanding relationship with my former business partner and just kind of took the excitement, overshadowed the actual reality of the situation. <laughs> but it was a great mistake because it, it it came out of coming off of the heels of being burnt out, getting into something that I was much more passionate about and understanding the what I like to do, what I don't like to do, having better feel for the the size of organization that I, I want to be a part of and, and where I want to fit. So there was a lot that I learned and, and grew. I, I mean, my business perspective grew significantly. Uh, the understanding of, of what it takes to launch a business, you know, outside of being an employee and everything else that comes with that and building the strategic relationships, like all amazing. The biggest learning point there was choose a business partner like you would choose a spouse. And that, you know, is something where I'm in business, you know, by myself at this point, and I enjoy it that way. <laughs> and I, have, I have lots of other divorced as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I am. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there, He's there taking his own advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, things in life happen for a reason, and um, that startup process highlighted a lot personally and professionally, and that really opened up, opened up my thinking and changed my perspective on a lot. 
to help people get a, a better understanding of both brand and systems thinking, is there anything you can recommend by way of resources, video, audio? Yes. Anything from Duarte, Nancy Duarte, uh, Data Story is a great one for storytelling and brand. Another, I mean, there's a ton of resources. That's the biggest one. Duarte, Duarte is awesome. I, I really enjoy them from a brand perspective. Crossing the Chasm is also very good. It, yes. So that's the, the Jeffrey Moore. That gets in a little bit more into how you can um, execute on some marketing plans, but helps you position. They, very helpful with positioning. Those are the biggest ones as far as brand. Strength is strength. Arthur Brooks is what I mentioned before. And that's kind of you know finding your second curve. So if you're kind of mid-career and, and you're starting to slow down in the execution, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And, and I know that, you know, people can put out more creative faster than me, but I can benefit because I provide all the experience that they don't understand with that and the messaging and the brand positioning that can add to that. So that was a good one to kind of help me understand my strengths from a leadership and um, mentoring perspective. And then as far as kind of the way I work and what's kind of interesting, Stephen Kotler. Yeah. So the Flow Research Institute, that's helpful for me, you know, getting into that maker time, the creative time, that focus time and capitalizing on those hours. So, so really trying to set yourself up for success by creating those specific habits that can really get you into high flow and um, kind of just catapult your um, creativity and your execution. Well, there's a really interesting article Jeffrey Moore produced for LinkedIn that came out today. I'll put it in the show notes. And it's about how we need to adapt with digital transformation. But he's talking about humanizing the whole process. And uh, I can't agree. Okay. Um, How can people get hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn would be the best. It's Jamie, J-A-M-I-E. Snow, S-N-O-W. And uh, that's the best way. I'm also kind of going through some rebranding. So that was uh, one of my struggle points that uh, (laughs) we're working on that. But that's a great spot. And you'll start seeing uh, more stuff uh, coming up on LinkedIn and a few other avenues from there. Wonderful. Jamie Snow, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. Take care. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, tag someone. And uh, if you feel the urge, then leave us an honest review, one star or five stars, not fast which. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at last-last.com. And there's a link in the chat in the blurb for uh, booking some time with me if you want some coaching. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.